morning, everyone. You can go and take a seat. It's good to see you this morning. We're in a message series we're calling How to Make a Bad Decision, and our hope is that we would learn how to make better decisions as a result of what we're talking about. The Bible is full of people who made some really bad decisions, and I'm glad the Bible is pretty honest about that, because in these stories, God is warning us to not make the same mistakes that these individuals made. So that's what we're doing in this series. We're looking at five of the worst decisions that were made in the pages of the Bible in order to draw out some important lessons from each one of them. So we began with the decision that Esau made to sell his future. And he did this because he was thinking short term. And then we looked at the fourth king in Israel. His name was Rehoboam. He made a decision that ended up starting a civil war, all because he set his heart on what he wanted and he just refused to to listen to wise counsel. He'd already decided what he wanted and no one was going to dissuade him. Last week we talked about Samson who never reached his God-given potential because he allowed the pressure of what people thought of him to really shape his decisions more than what God had called him to do. Today we turn our attention to David, the well-known shepherd boy who defeated Goliath. Now that shepherd boy went on to become the greatest king in the history of Israel. In just 20 years as king, David transformed the nation of Israel from a weak nation into the most powerful nation of that time. And then after 20 years of one great decision after another, he made the worst decision of his life. He had an affair with Bathsheba and then arranged a murder to cover up the affair. The uh, the devastation, rather, of that decision plagued both his nation and his family for generations. So the question you have to ask is, how does a person go from making 20 years worth of great decisions and then do something as awful as that? Well, here's how it all started. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, we read this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. Turns out the person that David uh, sent to find out about her came back and told him that she was, in fact, married. Not just married, but married to uh, Uriah, who was an officer in the army and was off defending the country. But that didn't stop David. He sent for her, and because he was king, she didn't dare refuse him. He slept with her, and she got pregnant. To cover it up, he ordered Uriah to come home on leave in the hope that he would sleep with his wife so that the baby would be seen as theirs and not his. But Uriah, out of solidarity with his own men out in the field of battle, refused to enjoy the comforts of home, and he slept outside in a tent, just like his men were doing at that time on the battlefield. So David moves into another plan. He invites Uriah to a party at the palace, and his hope is to get Uriah drunk enough that he will go home and then sleep with his wife. But that didn't work either. So finally, David sends Uriah back to the battle with instructions for Joab, the general, to place Uriah out on the front lines so that he would be killed in battle. This is what it says about that in 2 Samuel 11, 14-15. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, quote, Put Uriah in the front of the line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So not just put him in a vulnerable place, but put him in a vulnerable place and then have all the men withdraw so he'll, he'll be killed. 
So Uriah died in battle as David planned. David then took his pregnant wife, Bathsheba, and now destitute wife as his own, which in that day would have seen, been seen as both a gesture of great kindness and nobility. This is dark stuff. I mean, David cheated with the wife of one of his officers. And then he has the guy carry his own death warrant to the battlefield. And then he ends up painting himself, David, to look like the hero in the end. But God is not fooled by this sham, by this cover-up. He confronts David through the prophet Nathan. And this is what he says through Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, verses 9 through 10. Why do you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Now, he arranged it, but he was the one that did it and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. It wasn't your sword, but you did it. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And this is exactly what happens in the future from this point forward. The story of David's family line from this point on is a bloody one. Very few of them ended up dying peacefully in bed. Now, this is shocking. If you read the story from last week, the story of Samson, you probably weren't that surprised at how it ends. I mean, Samson's kind of a train wreck from the beginning. The whole story starts off, and you can tell Samson's, he didn't want to be who God wants him to be, and he's struggling kind of out, out of the gate. But David is not that guy. David really is amazing from the moment we meet him in the pages of the Bible. His faith, his courage, his love for God is something that, well, God himself points to and marvels at. Most of the Psalms in the Old Testament portion of the Bible are written by David. And if you've read the Psalms, it's pretty clear that David's relationship with God was not a sham. This is not some big pretense relationship. No, this was a real relationship. David was very serious about God and wanted to please God. I'm challenged by David's heart for and love for God. So how could this happen? What you've got here is probably the, the most amazing person in the pages of the Bible doing probably one of the worst things that could be done. How does that happen? I think the message is pretty clear through this story. If David was vulnerable to a fall like this, then we're all vulnerable. Like David, we can be on track with God for decades and then make one decision to betray the God that we love. So the vulnerability of David to sin, and therefore of all of us to the temptation of sin, is summarized, I think, in the New Testament passage of James, chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Here's what we read. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Don't blame God for this. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. This is what happened to David. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. It destroys things. These verses, I think, are a very clear description of the path of vulnerability that David followed and that we need to be careful that we don't follow. And it's a path that we know very well. Now, the path, this path of, of vulnerability to sin, 
begins at the source of our vulnerability. So that's where we're going to begin this morning as we analyze this story and try to draw lessons from it. Where does this come from? What's the source of our vulnerability to sin? It's the same as David's source. I mean, how could a good man like David do something so evil? Well, David isn't the only person I've asked this question about. I know of many people who are serious about God that have made a decision like this. Now, I haven't done what David did, but I, to be honest, have been far less than impressed with my own decision-making track record when it comes to sin. So where does this come from? Well, we first have to understand it's not God's fault. It doesn't come from God. As it says in the passage we just read, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now, very few people will actually blame God directly. We tend to blame God indirectly. Very few people will say, God, this is your fault. But they'll, they'll kind of get to that by a roundabout way. We tend to blame our situation for the struggles we have with sin. Well, who's in charge of our situation? God is. Who could change our situation? God could. And so what tends to happen is we get in a challenging situation in life, and maybe we get hurt, maybe we get angry, maybe we get bitter. And without accusing God directly, we start putting things together in our mind that goes this way. You know, given how hard my life is, given how unfair I've been treated, given how these things that have happened to me that shouldn't have happened to me, I'm kind of entitled to just go rogue for a little while here. And that's often how the path begins. We start blaming someone other than ourselves. Ultimately, we blame God. The point that we need to grasp at the beginning here is the source of our temptation and our vulnerability to sin is not an external source. It's not, there's nothing out there that's forcing us. There's nothing out there that's causing us to do these things. It's really an internal source. It is, as it says in James, our own evil desire that resides inside of each of us. And this evil desire, if we allow it, can end up taking on a life of its own that we lose control of. Notice all of the life words that are mentioned in this James passage. The word conceived, well, that's where life begins. It turns out that our evil desires have the power to conceive a living force of evil in us, to conceive life. Well, what do they give birth to? Something's conceived and eventually it's born at some point later. What what does evil desire conceive and give life to? Well, it gives birth to sin, it says. The act of defying what God has said on a matter. But it doesn't end there. Just like the birth of a child, that's just the beginning of that life. Then, like any child, the sin, well, it grows up which means it becomes bigger and it becomes stronger. It becomes not just one sin usually, it becomes a pattern of sin. And these patterns, they have a life of their own. It's kind of like our children. You know, the bigger they get, the less control we have of them. And that's what happens when we allow our evil desires to conceive sin and the sin to multiply is we, they get bigger and we get weaker in their presence. The problem with these kids is they don't ever move out because, well, there are sin patterns. They're with us. And then they end up destroying things in our lives, things that we really value, things that we really love, things that we would never have wanted to be destroyed end up being destroyed by these 
living sins in our life. And then in a great statement of irony, it says at the end, they ultimately end up giving birth to what? Death. They give birth to death. So what we gave life to started as just a desire and then a simple sin ends up eventually killing a bunch and destroying a bunch of things that we really love in our life. It grows up maybe to kill our marriage or maybe our influence. All that we've maybe worked to build for maybe decades ends up being destroyed by these things. And eventually, they come for our own lives. So we are never just facing a decision of whether, should I sin or not sin? That's, that's not just what we're deciding. According to this, what we're deciding is, do I want to have a child or not kind of decision? That's a bigger decision. Do I want to sin or not sin? That's just a moment. What this is saying is you're getting ready to decide whether you want to give birth to a child that has a lifespan to it. That's a bigger decision. Do I want to give birth to something that is not cute and will grow up to destroy my life? So what can we do then about the battle that we all face with these desires to do what is wrong on the inside of us? We all have this. We all battle this. What can be done? Well, just like any battle, the location we choose to fight this battle, the battle of our desires, that makes all of the difference. So now understanding the source of our vulnerability, we're going to talk about the paths of our vulnerability. Where do we choose to fight these desires? David was like everyone who walks the earth. He'd been walking around with this evil desire in his heart for a long time. You know, having sex outside of marriage was not a new thought for him. Just like any sin is never an out-of-the-blue first-time thought for anyone. So the question you have to ask is, why was that the day when David had an affair with Bathsheba? Why was that the time when David's desire gave birth to sin? Why was that the birthday of that desire? Why not the previous year or some previous day? The reason was because David put himself in a vulnerable place. Like us, David's heart was vulnerable to sin. But if you add the vulnerability that we all have to sin to a vulnerable place, well, then it just becomes a matter of time before the inevitable happens. The path of vulnerability for David began at the beginning of the story. 2 Samuel 11, 1. We read this, but let me read it again. It's important to see this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. David made a path decision. Everyone's going out to do what kings always do in this time and in this part of the world, but David chose to take a different path. At that moment, he didn't say, you know what? I'm going to have an affair with a woman. No, he just decided to take a different path that ended up putting him in a really vulnerable place. It began with a decision to not do what kings like David always did at this time. I mean, given the weather challenges of this part of the world, the weather challenges of winter and summer, it was the spring when armies would travel, and therefore it was the spring when the defense of the nations, the nations were always most critical. As king, 
David should have been leading his troops, fighting for the defense of Israel, but instead he was back home doing what? Nobody knows. That's kind of the point. Nobody knew. All the people who would have normally been surrounding David, well, they were gone. No one was there in any particular day to say, hey, does anybody know where David is? No one was there to say, why isn't David here? No one was ever there to say, I thought David was going to be at this meeting. No one was there. So by staying home, David isolated himself and put his vulnerable heart to sin in a very vulnerable place. The phrase in James that describes this path decision is the phrase dragged away. It's a very interesting description. What this is saying is that temptation occurs whenever we are dragged away. What are we dragged away from? From what we should have been doing. Temptation is always a diversion from what you should be doing. It's a byproduct of wandering, of not being intentional about what you should be doing. So for David, all of the energy and all of the focus that had been true of every spring that David had been king suddenly had nowhere in particular to be and nothing in particular to do. You know, the phrase, this is not a Bible phrase, but it's an accurate phrase, where idle hands are the devil's what? Workshop. It's not a verse in the Bible, but it's a pretty accurate description of this. So it's no surprise that David ended up on the roof of a palace, of his palace, at night with a wandering heart and wandering eyes, and he, he got in trouble. When we find ourselves struggling with temptation to sin, we are fighting against the desire to do something that we know is wrong. But if you just fight that desire at the should I or shouldn't I do it question, you will most likely lose. A better question to ask is, what should I be doing now? Because you've been dragged away. If you're at this point, you've been dragged away already. Which means you're not charging strongly after the responsibilities that God has given you. So ask yourself if you're married, am I coasting in my marriage? Well, if you are, then you're going to be tempted. You're going to be dragged away. Am I coasting in my work responsibilities? Am I coasting in my relationship with God? If you're not charging strong after these things, you're going to find yourself at a point on your path where you're struggling with the temptation to sin. So we tend to think that we, sh- we just stand here and say, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. But that, eventually, you're going to sin. You need to get away from that and go after what you should be doing. The best way to say no to what you should not be doing is to say yes to what you should be doing. This is really important to understand. It took me a long time to learn this. I kept being amazed that I keep saying no, 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 and then I mess up. And then I realize it's because I'm, I'm not saying yes. I'm just trying not to say no. The way God has designed our heart is it can only move in one direction at a time. can't move in two directions, just like our body. We can't go in two separate directions. We can only go one direction at a time. 
What that means is we're always saying yes to something. What that also means is, is we're wired in such a way where we can't just say no. In fact, we're more wired to say yes than we're wired to say no. So the don't sin, don't sin, don't sin approach just doesn't work. That's the no approach. Really, the way it works is, okay, what am I supposed to be doing? I've noticed this in my own life is maybe I'm struggling with some temptations. Usually what I'll discover is that it's because I'm beginning to coast in some area of responsibility. Again, maybe it's my marriage. Maybe it's some responsibilities here. Maybe it's my walk with God. When our kids were home, maybe it was family life, parenting. And if I can figure out where I'm coasting and I can start charging after that, the, it's almost the temptation almost begins, it's like a fever that begins to break as I begin to charge after what God wants me to charge after. The battle that David fought and that we fight is not just a moment of temptation decision that we hope, we hope, we hope we can be stronger than David was at that moment. I mean, it is a moment of decision. If you're in that moment of decision, say no and run. But realize that it, that moment was preceded by a set of path decisions that bring us to that moment or take us away from that moment. Now, the paths that take us closer to the moment of temptation have two powers that pull us there. They're described in James as the power to drag us away and the power then to entice us. Each of these powers, the power to drag away, from what we should be doing, and then the power to entice us to what we shouldn't be doing, those two powers are marked each by two decisions, I think. We are enticed by what our eyes see and what our mind thinks. And we are dragged away by where our feet go and how long we hang out there. So I want to look at these four markers. The two markers of enticement on the path and the two markers of being dragged away. First, we're going to look at the enticement markers. The first enticement marker is sight. This is what you look at. You know, the reason advertisers spend half a trillion dollars globally each year is because our eyeballs are connected to our desires. That's why it works. I mean, you don't spend half a trillion dollars if it doesn't work. It works. What we look at and don't have we desire. That's just, that's just the way we are. It's always been the way we are. Not just modern advertising. We've just perfected the ability to get more images in front of our eyes than ever before. You know, sometime this year, Costco started sending me emails about all the great deals I might be missing. I don't know if any of you gotten these. I'm now getting, I don't know, four or five a week. And uh, so, well, you know, they're kind enough to send them to me, so I've been looking at them. And I've noticed my discontentment growing, subtly. I mean, it wasn't just one email and, oh, I'm discontent. And part of the challenge is, is we're entering into a season. I mean, on the calendar, it's called Thanksgiving and Christmas. But I think the more accurate term for it in our culture would be a midwinter festival of discontent. I think that's, that's what we're really entering into, where we are presented with things that we don't have, 
that we hadn't even imagined that we need that are now on amazing sale and we'd be an idiot not to buy them. And so it's, by the time you get to January, you have both either the debt or the expense and the heart of discontent. And I, I've noticed just over this last month that these emails have become a distraction to me. And I'm not saying the emails are evil. I'm just saying that the longer I look through these emails, it, it has a distracting effect on me. It, it affects my heart. So if I don't want to be dragged away from the path of contentment, I'm going to have to consider what to do. I better not spend a lot of time looking longingly at something that I don't need right now. I, I make this point just to enticing usually starts out visually with our eyes. This is why Proverbs 4.25 says this, let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Evil desires are usually a distraction. They're usually off to the side of whatever you're supposed to be doing, wherever you're supposed to be going. So what this is saying is, don't turn your head. Keep going after what you're supposed to be going. Don't, don't let yourself get dragged away. Fix your gaze on what it is that God has given you to accomplish right now. The next marker on the enticement path is thought. This is usually phase two of enticement. First I see it, and then I start thinking about it. The more we think about a desire, the greater are the chances that we're going to act on that desire. So how can we pull our minds out of the ditch? Well, thoughts, like the actions we talked about earlier, they need to be replaced, not just removed. You know, the mind works the way the rest of us work. We can't just say, don't think about this, don't think about this, don't think about this. Now, you have to start thinking about something else. It's the displacement principle. We can't just stop thinking about something we shouldn't be thinking about. We have to start thinking about something that we should be thinking about. So a good thought or a bad thought or any thought won't leave just because we command it to. It has to be displaced. This is where God's word becomes an essential tool to help us in our vulnerability to sin. It's as we read his word. It's as we memorize particular verses in the Bible that can be brought to our mind at a moment's notice that we get some real help on this. It gives us instant replacement thoughts that can be targeted at the specific thoughts that you might be struggling with right then. Psalm 119.11 says this, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You know who wrote that? David. Most scholars think that he wrote this after the time with Bathsheba, but we really don't know. Whether he wrote it before and wasn't doing it, or whether this was his key takeaway after and he was doing it, the truth is the truth. David says if if I'm going to not sin against you, the key essential link is going to be I'm hiding your word in my heart. What that means is I don't need to read it on my phone. I don't need to. There, there's portions of it that are, that are in there. I know them. And at the point of struggle, the point of temptation, I can access those. I can choose to bring those thoughts to mind. And those thoughts push out the enticement thoughts. 
Now the two dragged away markers. The first one is place. For David, the place that he was dragged away to was the roof of his palace. Now what made that place particularly bad for David was not so much its location, although it did give him a view of Bathsheba taking a bath. That was not helpful. But what made this place bad was the fact that he was alone in that place. That's what made it really bad. I mean, he could have been in the same place with people who were serious about obeying God like he was, and nothing would have ever come of it. At the sight of Bathsheba, someone would have said, hey, David, we got to get out of here. And they would have left that place. But David went there, I believe, precisely because he knew at that time of night he'd be all alone. The path of temptation is always marked by the word away. Away. It's a path of isolation. Away from those who could have helped us stay on track. The point is, none of us can stay on track with God. None of us can stay on a good path all by ourselves. We are just not strong enough. None of us are. David isn't. We certainly aren't. We need a group of good friends who will help us stay the course. There's always plenty of people that will join us on the paths away from God. But the real gift of life is to link your life together with people who will help you stay on track. Thankfully, there are people that can help us keep from getting dragged away from God. Church is the place designed by God where you can find people like that that can help you. Now, you can't just walk in on a particular Sunday and order this because this is relationships. This takes investment. But this is a place where you find that. This is an opportunity for that. And I've seen this happen here at Seabreeze. I mean, we're obviously far from a perfect group of people. No group is perfect. But we really, a bunch of us are really trying to stay on the right path before God. And I've seen people who first start coming on a Sunday, and then they take another step, and they, they get involved in the growth groups, one of the cycles that we do throughout the year. And so then they start forming some friendships out of that. And then they maybe start also serving on a team, or maybe they do the team thing first, then the group thing, or together, whichever. And they, they start getting to know people. They start getting involved there. And as they make the investments that all friendships require, you know, you can't order a friendship. Amazon does not deliver friendships. That takes time. So as they make the investments that all friendships require, I've noticed maybe a year or two go by of someone really doing this, and the desires that used to completely eat their lunch are not as strong as they used to be. They don't ever go away, but they're able to get on track a little bit more. I've seen the same process, though, happen in reverse. I've seen someone make all kinds of growth and all kinds of progress and all kinds of movement in this direction, and then something shifts. It could be a relationship shift. It could be a desire shift. But they're tempted in some way towards something they really want, and it may not look evil to them. It's just something else now takes their heart, and they decide they want to act on it. They will never say to the group of friends they have, hey, everyone, just a heads up, I'm planning on to get, getting into a season of sin for a while. 
So you won't be seeing much of me. Because, you know, it's just, well, it's embarrassing to hang out with you when I'm pursuing what I really want to do over here that's wrong. You know, nobody ever announces that. What they actually do is they just, they kind of start drifting. And the people that know them start saying, hey, have you seen? And what's happening? And how come they weren't here? They just, you know, no big announcement, just kind of a slow kind of fade, slow drift until they're in the shadows. They make a place decision. That then affects, eventually, a sin decision. Then the last marker on the path is time. Notice the time references in the James verses. It says, then, after desire is conceived, speaking of basically pregnancy, doesn't say it's a nine-month period of time, but there's a period of time that goes by when desire has been conceived. And it keeps growing. It's not dealt with. So eventually it gives birth to sin. And sin, when, that's another time reference, it's full grown. You know, it takes time. Then it gives birth to death. This doesn't happen instantly. People don't just have an affair out of the blue. You know, to us it looks like they were walking along and the ground opened up and this swallowed them. Sometimes it feels like that to the person who does that. I was just, and then... It just happened. But it's never the full story. They don't just give in to temptation suddenly. We don't ever just give in to temptation suddenly. There's always a period of time where something could have been done that wasn't done that leads up to the act. A time when the desire was just a thought and it was left to linger and linger and linger and linger. A time when they kept the struggle all to themselves and never told a single friend. The desire was hidden, and it, well, it didn't seem that dangerous at the moment. But time has a way of growing desires. And enough looking, and enough thinking, and enough secrecy, and now, well, it's just a full-grown giant monster. So if you're struggling right now, if you're, you're at the edge you're on the roof of some palace somewhere where you shouldn't be and you're struggling, act now. Don't wait. Run away from it now. Tell someone today. Don't think, you know what, I I can do it. I can do it all by myself. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to tell anyone. No, time is not your friend. Now, these four path markers are all in limited supply for us. In other words, we have limited sight lines. We can only look one place at a time. We can't look everywhere. We have limited thoughts. You know, research is showing we really don't multitask. We do one thing, and then our minds go from one thing to another. We have limited thoughts. We can only be in one place at a time. And we all have a limited number of hours. And here's the key. How we choose to allocate these four every day will determine whether we walk on safer or more vulnerable sin paths. So no matter how well you've done in the past or how poorly you've done in the past, every day you and I wake up and we get to make these four decisions. What am I going to look at? What am I going to think about? Where am I going to go? And how long am I going to hang out there? That's, That's what our days are. And every day... 
that decision matters. It has weight. There's no fanfare that announces every time you make a good decision and no bad sound every time you make a bad decision. It's just you're making a path decision. None of us are strong enough to walk on the vulnerable paths. If the great David couldn't do it, we don't have a chance. So if you're looking for a verse to memorize, I would start here. James 1, 13 through 15. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. Let's pray. Father, you know better than we how weak we are. We are so grateful for your, your kindness to us, your patience with us, and your mercy. But even though you do forgive sin, that doesn't mean that sin doesn't, doesn't destroy. And we don't want to destroy the good things that you've given us in life. And so we pray that you'd help us to be honest about where we are to not play games about the path of vulnerability that we might be on. God, I pray for those that are beginning to inch their way back into the shadows. God, I pray that they would decide to step forward. God, that you would give help and power. God, we pray for those that are dealing with full-grown monsters of desire. God, we pray for your power to begin to break the power of that, those evil desires that maybe have been growing for decades. We pray that you would keep us from destroying what is good. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.